Morning, everybody. Wow, it's nice to have everybody well and have the seats filled instead of, you know, speaking to like half half of the people. Um, and I really got to say it was, it's been quite incredible um, the way the communities come together uh, when, you know, half almost half of the community was sick. And when we had Posada, there were five bhikshunis. That's, you know, like <laughs> we're used to many more. Um, yeah, so, but it, it's, it's really wonderful to see how the people who weren't sick just came together and, you know, you gave Dharma talks in five minutes' notice, you vacuumed the floor, you did the dishes, you did the cooking, and uh, I didn't hear any complaints. I don't know, maybe there were some, but I didn't hear any. And, which is amazing because this was a stressful situation and everybody chipped in and nobody complained. In a more leisurely situation, people don't chip in and they complain. It's very strange, isn't it? How we sentient beings are. Yeah. But I, I was um, quite like delighted and and really pleased to see how people stepped up to the plate and and contributed and uh, very happily so so yeah and it was mostly the seniors who were sick so this this praise is directed towards the juniors so don't don't say i never say anything nice to you about you <laughs> yeah but really, you guys ran the show, so it was quite good. Okay. So, we'll um, continue with equalizing and exchanging self with others, especially the equalizing part. Um, we remember there's the, the three sections. Two of the sections are uh, in accord with the prevent, uh, conventional perspective, and the last section is the ultimate perspective. And of the two with the conventional, we finish the first one, okay, which is the conventional perspective from the viewpoint of others. Yeah, and remember there were three points under that. What were they? Just like me, everybody wants to be happy and not suffer. Right. First one, everybody wants to be happy and not suffer. Second. Yeah, it's not fair to uh, help some beggars and not others. Third? Yeah, it's, and similarly, it's, it's not, you know, fair to just treat some patients who are ill and remove their suffering and ignore others. Yeah. So this is, is quite an effective meditation when you see yourself um, being biased, just sometimes over really stupid things, yeah, favoring one person over another, and uh, just to stop yourself and, and say, but they both want happiness and, and not suffering, so why do I want one of them to look at me and the other one not, or one of them to speak to me and the other one not? You know, they're, they're all the same in, in that regard, you know. And here is where we can really see 
very clearly our motivations for interacting with others. Yeah. Why do I want some people to speak to me and others not? Well, some people make me happy and other, people's ma- other people annoy me. Yeah. It's not because one is better than the other. It's just totally, uh, you know, the criteria is what pleases me and what displeases me. Yeah. And that's not a very good criteria for judging the capabilities or the um, uh, talents or anything about the other person. Yeah. Just because we like them doesn't mean that they're fantastic. And just because we, do, we don't like them, you know, doesn't mean something's wrong with them. Because this is all coming from, you know, our own little periscope, remember, of me, I, my, and mine, and how I judge everybody and put them into categories. Yeah. So it, it's quite good to, to remember this when you, when you um, see yourself doing that, especially if there's different uh, categories of people that you have uh, you know, kind of suspicion for or uncomfortable feelings with or or delightful feelings with and to really stop and question, well, you know, why do I favor them? Yeah. yeah. Because you see, this this involves a complete change in how we look at people. Our usual way is how they make me feel, not... But see, see even the wording, how they make me feel. It's not them making us feel a certain way. It's our mind projecting stuff onto them. Okay? But that's the criteria, you know, how I feel in relationship to them. And what this meditation is doing is saying that criteria is completely crazy. You know, there's no validity to it. Yeah, and rather, it's uh, you know, it's much more realistic to look from the side of others and see how they all want happiness and don't want suffering. Yeah, then there's space for everybody in our heart. Then there's a way for us to relate to everybody. But when the perspective is is how I feel when I'm with them, then uh, everything becomes quite skewed. You know, because as long as I feel good with them, then I give them inten- attention, you know, and perks and da 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 da. But the moment I'm fed up, like, yeah, and then my attention goes somewhere else. So it's, you can see how we have so many strings attached uh, when there is, um, a t- you know, attachment involved to different people and this kind of very superficial discrimination. I remember when, um, what was her name? One lady came to, to speak to us. Um, the one who got killed in the plane. Sandy Williams. Yeah, Sandy Williams. And we were talking about groups of people that, you know, we just look at them and automatically there's some kind of stereotype and we feel afraid of them. And I, I remember saying, you know, because I have a, a few of those groups, you know, I just see them and like, boing, you know. 
and and she had some, and I think everybody pretty much had some, yeah. And so mine were, um, uh, you know, the the big tough men with their big hats and beards and their AK forty sevens, strutting down the street, you know, the the proud boy uh, oath keeper kind of people, you know. Uh, and we have them in this area, and how I just see that image, and it's like, I don't want to be near these people. Yeah, they scare me. But that's like, I haven't even talked to them. I don't even know them. I've just projected that on based on the reputation of the group in the media. And I'm sure if I talk to any of those people, and I think the guy... Uh, who who worked on our septic system when we first moved here. You know, he was a libertarian, and I told you the story about how he chased the sheriff off of his property. But, um, uh, you know, to to stop and think, you know, if I talk to them as a human being, yeah, and I made an effort, for sure we could find something of common interest to talk about. Yeah, and and if as soon as I find that thing of common interest to talk about, then that breaks that whole stereotype and that whole imputation of you know here's kind of some rough tough, you know, white guy with his gun who's you know, uh, it's like no, that's not who he is. He's a person. He has feelings. He has a family. He can be kind. Yeah. And so how important it is uh, in the country nowadays to really, uh, instead of pointing the finger uh, about how others are bigoted, um, to look inside and try and overcome our own stereotypes about people. Yeah, But this is a meditation that really applies here. Okay? So... um, yeah. Otherwise, we kind of read this meditation. Yeah, uh, yeah. Everybody wants happiness. Nobody wants something. Yeah, that's nice. So what? <laughs> yeah, I knew that before I came to the Dharma. Didn't you know that before you came to the Dharma? You didn't. Oh, I I knew that before I came. It was, you know, I'm better. No, um, <laughs> no. It's like yeah, it was always obvious to me. Everybody wants happiness. Nobody wants suffering. But, you know, and I really love the thing of, yeah, love thy neighbor as thyself. But I had no idea how to break through all of that, you know, projection, which I didn't take as projection. I thought it was reality. Yeah, that's the problem. And, um, you know, to to really start looking deeper at uh, what other living beings were and to really think what was, uh, you know, what is equal, how sentient beings are equal, yeah? Because I remember as a kid, I always thought it was quite unfair that um, that I had food and I was aware of other kids in other countries not having food, yeah? And it was just like very unfair. Um, this world is not a fair place. Why should I have and they shouldn't have? And, um, yeah, 
you know, so there was that awareness. But how do you get your own mind past? Um, yeah, it's not fair, but I'm sure glad I have this perk. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, somehow, um, yeah, getting our mind beyond that to, to really um, see, you know, what's going on in the world with other living beings. In a fair way. Okay. Maybe we should do our uh, chanting at the beginning. (laughs) This meditation, I just think, is, is so powerful and so pertinent in our lives. It points out so many, so many things. Yeah, at least to me. So, okay, so... Visualize the merit field and the space in front. Yourself surrounded by all the sentient beings. Okay, so uh, to generate our motivation, let's begin by thinking of one um, kind of group of people that we have an especially strong emotional reaction towards. So it could be some group that we feel threatened by or afraid of, or some group of people that we feel very attracted to and want to be part of. So think of uh, that group of people. You don't need to know anybody in it. We're kind of calling up in some way the stereotypical image of, uh, you know, either some the kind of person that uh, makes us feel quite uh, insecure, and the kind of person that we feel very drawn to um, with attachment. And then think, what is it about that group of people that I feel uh, especially repulsed by or especially drawn to?
and then ask yourself, is that the only characteristic of those people? Or are they uh, a complete human being with all sorts of other activities, other interests, other things they talk about? And is the way I'm seeing them just looking uh, at one small slice of their behavior? And imagine that person that there's somebody that you feel threatened by, imagine them uh, with their family being very kind. And if there's someone who you're very attracted to and attached to, uh, some kind of group of people, imagine when they're in a bad mood and they take it out on other people. So try and see everybody as uh, full human beings, not just some stereotype that we've projected on them. And then switch your perspective from the qualities you think they have to your perspective and see uh, all these people as wanting happiness and not suffering in an equal way. And focus the mind on that and see if your uh, feeling towards them changes. And then think they're both equal in that perspective. And I want to follow the bodhisattva path to benefit all sentient beings. So there's uh, no reason whatsoever to think some beings are more important and others less so. And so therefore I will train my mind to keep my perspective of others, something realistic regarding their qualities and their wish for happiness and not misery. And I will work equally for all of them.
there's such a different feeling, isn't there, when you look at sentient beings in terms of how do they, you know, how do I feel when I'm with them? And then the perspective of how can I benefit them when I'm with them? Yeah, those two different perspectives. I mean, it's just how you feel inside. I don't know about you. I mean, I can feel it. When I look at people and my perspective is, uh, you know, how are they going to make me feel? Kind of this, uh, yeah, what can I get out of them in some way? Yeah. Versus, um, you know, I'm here to try and and benefit them and, and to look at the relationship in terms of how can I benefit them instead of how can I get them to sing and dance so that I like what I'm hearing. Yeah, if you know what I mean. Yeah, we, um, we try and get people to do what, what we like. Yeah, and, to, and that, that's really frustrating because they never do. Yeah, or they do for a little while and then they stop. Or they do and then they get mad at us. Yeah. Whereas if we just completely flip and like, okay, the purpose of this relationship isn't for me to get some good feeling by being around them, but for me to benefit them. Mm-hmm. And why do I benefit them? That leads us right into the first point of the, the second uh, uh, group of conventional conventional reasons to equalize self and others, which is, okay, all sentient beings have been kind to us in the past, uh, present, and will be kind in the future, so we should help them equally without abandoning any of them. So we started talking about that last week, and, you know, I think we we kind of really got into it, talking about, um, you know, the kindness of the parents uh, and then the kindness of strangers. And I didn't have much time uh, last week to talk about the kindness of the people who harm us. Because those are the last group of people. Oh, they harm me. They didn't help me. They aren't kind to me. Banish them from the face of the earth. They are evil. You know, it's it's so incredible how in the press, you know, you you watch what what people say, you know, this person is evil. Yeah. As if they had only one characteristic, which is evil. Yeah? Now what does evil mean? Yeah, because people are throwing around all these terms nowadays. I don't really know what all of them mean. What does evil mean besides, I don't like what you're saying? (laughs) That's what it seems to me. You know, the right says the left are evil and the left says the right is evil. Yeah, what does evil mean? Okay, and then you listen, I mean, especially around the, the politics you know, uh, the right is saying left, uh, leftist radicals, leftist radicals, socialists who want to make the country communist. Yeah, 
Now, I, I would like a definition. What is a leftist? You know, there's so many different ways of being on the left, aren't there? You could be on the left in terms of financial policy, in terms of social policy, you know, in terms of foreign affairs. And what position does the left hold on all these? Is it one uniform position so that if you are on the left, you only think exactly alike with all these other people? And what is a leftist radical? What makes somebody a radical? What's the definition of radical? I mean, I really want to get these terms straight so I understand what these people are saying. What is a radical? Yeah, and a socialist. Now, I know when I studied poli-sci what a socialist is, but I don't think that's what these people are, are calling these leftist radicals. And what is a leftist radical socialist? And then you have the, the um, and, you know, Antifa. What in the world is Antifa? They aren't even a group that's certified with the government, you know? <laughs> what is Antifa? Okay, then you go the other direction. Okay, a rightist. How are, are people right in terms of foreign policy, in terms of social things, in terms of finances? What, what does being a rightist mean? Yeah. And then you are a rightist, again, radical. Yeah. So what does radical mean when you're on the right? And third, you, you, know, you are a fascist. Now, what is a fascist? I used to know what a fascist is when I studied World War II. What is a fascist nowadays? What does that mean? So people are throwing all these names at everybody else, but I would really like some definitions so that I knew what people are talking about. Maybe this is the influence of having studied Dura. You know, I want some definitions. <laughs> yeah. But it helps because otherwise, you know, it, it's, it's crazy, you know. And then we hear a magna uh, Republican and and a um, what is the other one? There's the, the magna Republicans and then the yeah, oh, and the rhinos. Yes, thank you. Yeah, the rhinos. Yeah, you know what a rhino is. Yeah, okay. No, it's a Republican in name only. Okay, which means that you don't follow Trump. That's, that's the only definition I can come up with for a rhino, you know, besides a, a kind of animal, <laughs> you know. But I don't know. I mean, there's lots of people who don't follow Trump. Does that make them all rhinos? You know, are you either a rhino or a MAGA, you know? So it's... it's you know, it's just how we slap terms on people, and then we think we, we know everything about them. Yeah. So then this first point is completely looking at them as they've been kind instead of they're this, 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 pointing fingers, is they've been kind, and all of them have been kind. 
And of course, yeah, they've been kind when they've been our parents. Oh, except until we turn against our parents and then we criticize them and blah, blah, blah. That's another topic, you know. But um, they've all been kind as our friends. Yeah, they've been kind as strangers. We can stretch our mind that far. Yeah, but people who have harmed us, how have they been kind? Never. Yeah, they are inherently evil and never to be forgiven. They have no other side of their personality. They do no other action. Their whole life value boils down to one action that they've done, which was an action that harmed me or the people that I care about. We can't see anything else in, in that person. Yeah, And then what does that do? We hold on to that image of them like this. We make it concrete. That person harmed me. There is nothing good about them. You know, I will never forgive them. You know, and as I said before, we don't break that vow. Yeah, ordination vows, marriage vows, we... <laughs> but when I vow never to speak to somebody again, I am firm. I will never do that. Yeah? Uh, do you have people that you uh, have that attitude towards? Yeah, people have harmed you. You don't like, you don't want to get near them. Huh? It's interesting to think about, yeah. We think, oh, no, I'm a nice, kind person, very forgiving. Hmm. Yeah. So, as many of you have heard before, I come from a family uh, on my mother's side that holds grudges. Yeah. And so I grew up as a kid, uh, you know, these people who live on the same, they, uh, they had a, um, a house near Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and there were two units downstairs and two units upstairs. And the people in the top unit upstairs, we do not talk to. Yeah? Because we're, we're in the downstairs unit. The people upstairs, we don't talk to. Why? You know, you're a little kid, and you hear, don't talk to those people. Why? Well, it's complicated. I still don't know the reason. It has something to do with, on my grandmother's, uh, my grandmother's generation, okay, that something between the siblings on the grandmother's generation, they didn't get along. So because they didn't get along, me, as the second generation down, are not supposed to talk to their kids or play with their kids. Perfectly reasonable, huh? If you're crazy. <laughs> okay. And whenever there was a big family event making a seating arrangement was extremely difficult because this one didn't speak to that one who didn't speak to this one who didn't speak to that one. And so it started out on my grandparents' generation, then my parents' generation. You know, when I was little, all the brothers and sisters got along. 
then different things happen, and this one and that one and something about the business, and I still don't know the whole story with them. Okay. Yeah. And then I watch, I thought, my, my generation, we would never do something like that. Then I talked to some cousins, and they don't speak to their siblings. Okay. And you just see, you know, you grow up and you see this as an example and you see, yeah, yeah. And you pick out, it's very interesting, people who are family, one small slight is much heavier than a small slight by a stranger. Yeah, like you aren't invited to one party or somebody didn't give you a gift that is up to rank for the occasion, and like, yeah, we're not speaking again. It's crazy. crazy. And then even when people are on their deathbeds, one of my cousins called my um, brother when his father was dying, my uncle was dying, asking if my mother, my uncle's sister, wanted to talk to him before he died because they hadn't spoken in years. My mom said no. You know? And it's it's like this this is yeah, we form these opinions, we hold grudges. Yeah. And uh you know, in in seventh grade, in Mr. Reese's current events class, yeah. Peter Armetta you know, was anti-Semitic and made some anti-Semitic remark about how you should just go back to where you came from. Yeah, and I was taught that when I heard anti-Semitic remarks, I should be upset. Yeah, so I did as I was told. I got upset. I dashed out of the room. I spent the rest of the day crying in the girls' bathroom. Yeah, and I vowed never to speak to Peter Armetta again as long as I lived. Yeah, and I I haven't spoken to him. Uh, um, but we were in many of the same classes, you know. In this was in seventh grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, all through high school. Both of us went on a special program to college. We were in the same group there. Yeah, it was like an ice chunk. Yeah. So I'm I'm waiting for him to turn up at some some talk I give so I can apologize for how stupid I was. You know. But okay, the kindness of of the person who harms you. What that event taught me, you know, plus other things I experienced as I was going through school was I do not want to have an identity of persecution. Yeah? I do not want that to be my identity of I am a persecuted person. I belong to a persecuted group. And I always have to be wary. Okay? When I went to Israel uh, to teach in 1997... They, somebody wanted to do an interview, so I went over to one person's house, and this journalist came. And um, 
They were quite interested that I grew up in a Jewish family, but I am now Buddhist. Yeah, and so they were saying, "Well, are you Jewish?" And so I gave the the usual Sunday school answer of what does it mean to be Jewish? Okay, so you know, is it a race? That's what Hitler said it was. Is it a race? Is it a religion? Is it a culture? Yeah, what is it? So I said, you know, what what. Yeah, this is always the Sunday school debate, you know, what does it mean to be Jewish? So, um, you know, so I, I said that as a response to the journalist. So one woman there looked at me and she said, the next time they come to kill us, are they going to kill you too? That was her demarcation of being Jewish, you know? that you are a persecuted minority and you're going to get killed by all these other people who are prejudiced against your group. I do not want that identity. That's not why I became a Buddhist, by the way, just to change identities. But, you know, it's like I, it, it really affected me. It's like I refuse to, to grow up with that kind of mentality. Yeah. So I'm, I'm aware of the culture and the history and all of this kind of stuff. But, yeah, I have a very different outlook on life. But I have to look at those incidents like that and say thank you to the people who made that happen. Because if they hadn't happened, made that happen, I would have not grown, you know, in the way I had grown, and I would have not really looked at how I, you know, because I was taught to hold grudges. Yeah, I mean, and if you grew up in families where you you were taught just, you know, these people are mean, or these family members, this side of the family, whatever it was. Yeah, and and as kids, you just kind of take that on and you believe it. Yeah, unless you really stop and think about it. And what made me stop and think about it was these actions by other people. So I have to say thank you to them. Yeah, the kindness of the quote, quote, enemy. Yeah. So there was many, I mean, I could give you many more examples, but um, all of them boil down to, I'll give you, I'll give you one more. Um, uh, when I was teaching at DFF, there was one person who was very, very helpful in the group, and we worked quite closely together in terms of planning the program and running the group and everything. And uh, and it was uh, he was a very good practitioner. And uh, it was my birthday, and so the people were having some refreshments at the center, and he didn't come. But he sent a card, and the card said, um, I'm leaving the group. I can't accept anything about the lower realms anymore. Yeah. This was my birthday card from somebody who I relied on very much to help with the administration of the group at my birthday. What in the... I mean, it was like out of the blue. I had no idea what was going on, why, why he said that. 
you know, and why he, he felt that. I mean, what's that? All of a sudden, this issue with the lower realms. Anyway, so I was like floored, and I was just devastated. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, no, you know, like, who's going to help? And what did I do wrong? And blah, 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 blah. You know, just brought up all this garbage, okay? So I did a retreat uh, very soon after that. And, of course, in the retreat, you know, when you're upset and you're angry, what do you do? You have to work out your what's ever in your mind. You can't ignore it. So, but what it, this whole situation made me see as I went into it um, was, uh, you know, the subtle ways that attachment works. Yeah. And somebody helps me, you become attached, then you have unrealistic expectations. Yeah, they're a good practitioner now. That means they're always going to be there. They're always going to practice. They're never going to go into crisis. They aren't going to drop out and do something else. You know, you develop unrealistic expectations. You, uh, yeah, all sorts of things like that without realizing that people are very complex and that they have all sorts of karma um, as well as I have all sorts of karma that we don't even know about and can't even uh, think of ripening that would lead us to say and do things and make decisions that are completely out of character with who we are right now. Yeah? And... I, you know, it really made me think about that and how um, I have to be so much more open and relaxed and not have those kind of expectations, yeah? And when somebody completely, you know, does something and like, bye-bye, um, to not take it personally, yeah, to look at my part of it, what I, you know, mistakes I have made, made, but to not take their change of heart personally because it has to do with their mental state and their karma ripening. Yeah, and so I don't need to get upset every time like this. So it's like the um, the verse in the uh, in the eight verses of thought training. Um, how does it go, the one about betrayed, mistreat me with abuse, slander, and so on? I will, just accepting defeat and, and, and offering the victory to them. No, but it's the, no, no, it's the one about betraying trust. Trust, yeah. It's, um, well, you know, I have it memorized, but I can never think of it. When someone I have benefited and have placed great trust treats me very badly, yeah, just seeing that person as my supreme teacher, okay? Because I really felt in that situation that this person had really betrayed my trust, yeah? And it was like coming out of the blue and what's going on. And, you know, after I put so much energy and blah, 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 blah. I mean, I had my whole, my, I was the prosecutor. You know how we are when we get mad at somebody? You're the prosecutor 
You're the judge. You're the jury. They are convicted. They do not have a defender at all because there is nothing for them to defend. Yeah. And we, we just, uh, you know, try them in the court of our own mind, throw them in prison, decide to hate them forever. And what good does it do us? <laughs> yeah. So instead, to flip the situation and see, look at how much I've benefited from that person hurting me. Yeah, I can either stay stuck in my anger and hatred, stuck in my feeling of victimization, or I can learn from this situation. And the choice is mine. It has nothing to do with the other person. Do, am I going to learn from this situation, or am I going to stay stuck in my anger? Yeah? And so that was what, you know, the situation I was in. And I mean, once, once you've, you've been through chapter six a few times, you know, your judge and jury convicting the other person of how stupid and evil they are, it doesn't work anymore. Shanti Deva is like right there going, You read what I wrote. <laughs> You know, why don't you practice it? <laughs> but Sandy Deva, you don't understand this person. It just hurt me so badly. And Shanti Deva says, well, whose karma made that happen? But you say, forget about karma. Um, you know, they don't understand me. Nobody understands me. And Shanti Deva says, do you understand them? Yeah. And then you go, but, but, you know, they have obligations towards me and they should act this way. And it's only the polite thing to do in society that they act this way and they don't do that. And Shanti Deva says, mm. and who made up the standards of what polite is? You know, I mean, Shanti Deva doesn't let you out of it. And it's good. It's good, you know, because you have to sit there and, and, like, see that your entire way of thinking is stupid. Yeah, <laughs> really. And how much you fall back into that old way of, stu of stupidity and hold on to it. And we're the one who suffers from it. The other person doesn't suffer. We suffer. Yeah. So, you know, when you really get into that, then you have to, you know, this person in Seattle, I, you know, I say thank you because he really taught me a lot. Yeah. And I, there's so many people, if I look back in my life, that I have to say thank you for what you taught me, even though it was, the situation was hell. Yeah, I learned from it, and I learned some things very important from it. And it's only because you put me in that situation that I learned. Otherwise, I never would have learned. Yeah? 
So, um, yeah, so you have to see the kindness of the quote-quote enemy because the enemies are not really mean. Yeah? If we pull ourselves out of that way of looking at it, you know, the enemies, who are they? They're sentient beings who want to be happy, who don't know what the cause of happiness and what the cause of suffering are. That's all. They're not evil people who are out to get us. They're confused people who are living in the middle of suffering. Yeah. So why am I so, you know, aren't, why am I prejudiced against them because of the way they acted towards me? You know, when I'm suffering, I want people to have compassion for me. What you know, what about me having compassion for them when they're in the middle of their uh, incredible suffering? Yeah. And so the same, you know, goes for looking at other people. You know, in one way, I talk about certain political figures, you know, because their behavior is a very good example of things that we're trying not to be like. But in another way, I mean, they are not that behavior. That's just a stereotypical image because of the press. But if I look at them, why are they acting in that way? Because in some way they're like little kids who are just saying, I just want to be loved. I just want to be accepted. I want to feel like I'm important. You know, and they're, they're like that, except they're in adult bodies and they happen to have wiggled their way into positions of power. But what is feeding them is, you know, their, in, their internal needs to feel like a valuable, loved person, which I think everybody has, you know, that wish. We, you know, as, until we get... You know, really start pinpointing our self-grasping as the enemy and our self-centeredness as the enemy. That this is what kind of motivates us: the wish for happiness, not suffering; the wish to feel like we are accepted, that we we are um, that we are in a safe environment where people won't attack us. Um, you know that we are valued and we can contribute. And that's what we want. And that's what's going on in Putin's mind, in, you know, dear Donnie's mind. That's all, you know. So why are we hate, you know, what use is hating them? That's ridiculous. Yeah. And especially when you think of the kind of rebirth they're going to have. Yeah. You can't even imagine that. Mm hmm so I think I told you when I was going, we were going up, uh, when I was in pilgrimage in, in Tibet, the windy road going up to the top to get to Gandhan Monastery and thinking of all the Chinese soldiers who, you know, who were poor boys from village boys who don't know anything about politics, who joined the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, to earn some money to send back to their impoverished parents. And then, you know, 
the Mao sent them out to Tibet to, you know, destroy monasteries, but they had to exert tremendous effort, you know, climbing up this mountain to get to the top to where Gondon Monastery is. Yeah. And then they completely wreaked the, you know, destroyed the place. There were a few places, um, you know, a few buildings left, but most of it destroyed. And especially, I mean, Jason Kappa's body was there, and that was, yeah. anyway. Um, but were they evil people? Do we have to hate them? I mean, they were just really impoverished young boys who wanted to get some money for their family. Yeah. And you put people in different in certain situations and they act in certain ways. Yeah. And uh but how can we hold it against them when they're just under the influence of, of self-grasping ignorance and the self-centered thought. And so are we. Yeah, we have the right to judge them when we're controlled by, by the real enemies just as they're controlled by those real enemies. Okay, so, the, the, you know, the first point there was all the sentient beings have been kind to us. The second point was, um, uh, if you think that sentient beings have harmed us, remember that, they, uh, that their help exceeds the harm. So that's what I was just talking about, you know? We've, instead of just, they harm me, they harm me, they harm me. Um, not just, this, this is what they did that harmful, and now they're doing something else that, you know, is nice. So now we have two things. So, But actually the harm, if we take the harm into the path, that harm helps us. Yeah. And that's the whole beauty of the thought training teachings, you know, of transforming adversity into the path. And uh, those, those teachings, I think it's really important, um, you know, to get, get our mind very, very steeped in those teachings uh, so that we can manage whatever happens to us in life. You know, and who knows what's going to happen to us. Uh, and it's going to, you know, we may face very difficult situations, but may we at least have some background in those thought training teachings so we try and remember them and practice them when difficulties arise. Yeah, and I think that's so important to get that foundation. Otherwise, you can study all sorts of categories and this and that and the other thing, but that's not going to help you when you're in a jam. And the real Dharma practice is transforming our minds. Yeah, so to, to know how to work with the mind. Okay, so... If we think that sentient beings have harmed us, remember that their help exceeds their harm. Yeah. Um, so even if they harm us this life, you know, the harm, we can see the harm as benefit. But also remember they may, have, they may harm us this life, but in previous lives they've helped us. In future lives they will help us. In other words, people are not... 
inherently existent kind of frozen personalities who uh, uh, we're always going to relate with in the same way from one life to the next. Yeah. And uh, people just change forms. This time, you know, you're born as a family and they take, they take care of you. Next time, you're born, you know, in universes away. And the time after that, you're fighting each other in a war. And the time after that, you know, one of you is a small fish and one of you is a shark. And, you know, it's like these things are always changing. So, you know, just looking at who people are right now and thinking that being is like this and never, ever, ever will I do anything good towards them because they're, they've always been horrible and they always will be horrible. I mean, that is, that's not the Buddhist view of what rebirth means. You know, everything is like changing constantly. So... We can't just put people in categories and just uh, do things like that. Uh, yeah, so that's really important that we remember, you know, because when we hold on to grudges, yeah, we think if I hate that person, they suffer. You know, my hatred makes them suffer. Yeah. I'm sure somebody hates me. I have no idea who they are. Does their hatred make me suffer? Yeah? Does my hatred make anybody else suffer? Okay, if I started attacking them or something. Yeah. But just holding a grudge and hating somebody, that doesn't make them suffer. Who's the one that suffers? Me. Yeah? Because a mind that holds on to anger is an extremely unhappy mind. You know, we're the one who suffers the most. And you see this, you know, as you work with, with many people and they tell you about their lives, you see how, how some people stack up in their mind, you know, one grudge after another, you know, one feeling of betrayal after another, one feeling of being cheated after another, until, you know, when they're old, you wonder sometimes why some people are bent over, if it's just because of their body or if it's because of all the hurt and anger that they've stored up during their whole lives. Yeah. And who wants to grow old like that? I'm sure, did you know people who are old and bitter, old and angry? Yeah? Do you want to grow up to be like that? Yeah? I don't. Yeah? So, you know, if we're not going to grow up to just be uh, so focused on how life has mistreated us, um, we have to learn how to be resilient. And I think the real key to resilience is forgiving, you know, and finding different ways to look at the situation so that we can release our antipathy and release our hurt. Yeah, because where does the antipathy come from? From hurt. Where does the hurt come from? Self-grasping. 
self-centeredness, attachment, okay, are all of those realistic, are any of those realistic mental factors? Mm -mm. Why am I holding on to unrealistic mental factors and taking them as the truth of the situation? Yeah, who's causing me suffering? Self-grasping ignorance, self-centered thought, not the other person. Yeah. And so if I'm going to be happy, I have to start release the, releasing those and have to start dealing with my attachment and my anger and my jealousy and my arrogance and all those other nifty little mental fang factors that are hanging out in there you know, ready to uh, jeopardize my happiness. Yeah, and that's our work. That's our work. And nobody else can do it for us. We can't hire anybody else to do it. Yeah, you can put an advertisement in the, in the newspaper. Please, I need somebody to meditate on fortitude. I'm so busy with all my projects, but I, I'm really angry, so I need somebody to meditate on fortitude for me so that I can relax. Yeah, that would be nice, you know. If you have some spare money, you know, hire somebody to meditate on fortitude so you can uh, learn to let go of your anger. Yeah, but uh, who are you going to hire? Yeah, because nobody else can do it for us. It's like, I'm exhausted. I need some extra sleep. Can you sleep for me? I don't have any time to sleep. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, if we didn't have to waste our precious human life sleeping, we could hire somebody else to do it. Yeah. Yeah, there, 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 there will be sleep experts. Yeah. You can pay for it to sleep for different hours, you know. I'll sleep three hours for, you know, so much money. If you want me to sleep four hours for you, you get a discount per hour, yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? It doesn't work, though. Yeah, it doesn't work. We're the only one that can do this. Okay, then the third um, point, this one I find very, very powerful too, uh, yeah, is since we and others are going to die, there's no sense in discriminating against anyone or holding grudges. And that's really true, isn't it? We're all going to die. So what, what is the use, first of all, of jealousy? This one I find a very good remedy for jealousy. If we're all going to die, why am I jealous of people? Because whatever thing that they have that I'm jealous of, they're going to die and lose it. So why should I hold it against them that they have that perk and I don't? Because it's only some temporary characteristic that they're going to have, and we're all dying and taking rebirth, so they're going to lose that advantage. And maybe in next life, you know, I'll get it. 
But why do I have to, you know, hold so much hostility now? That's really a waste of my energy. You know? And, you know, if, yeah, if we're all going to die, why am I holding on to, to all this hurt and pain and betrayal? Yeah. People promised, and I thought that this was going to be like that, and, you know, and my life is supposed to be like that. Families are supposed to be happy. Where did that rule come from? Yeah. Everybody in a family is supposed to love each other, and they're supposed to be happy. You know, we grow up like that. Who made that rule? Or is that just a TV commercial rule, especially around Christmas time. Yeah, where everybody's sitting there. Joy to the world. And then mama's baking cookies and daddy's, you know, stuffing stockings and and the kids are running around and you get your toy train and everything you want. And the family is happy. Nobody gets sick. There's no financial problems. Yeah. There's nothing that happens. Everybody's always, you know, Betty Crocker and, and yeah, yeah, Betty Crocker and uh, Lassie and, I, and, and Leave it to Beaver. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. And there's little problems, but they're all remedied because that's the way life is supposed to be. Yeah, and that's what we get on TV, and and we think that. Well, who made up that? Who said that? That's a bunch of garbage, isn't it? You have a bunch of people with afflictions together, and you're going to live happily ever after? What? (laughs) Yeah, there's this one passage in one of the Pali Suttas where the Buddha's going, you know, if... I'm somebody with afflictions and and all, you know, anger and hatred and something. And I get together with somebody else who has afflictions and anger and hatred and attachment. How is that going to be a good recipe for happiness? And, you know, and that's what made him decide to renounce. One of the things that made him decide to renounce, you know. I mean, how is that a rep? It's a rep... It's a recipe for disaster. Why do we expect it to be happy, happiness? I mean, this is kind of the depth of our ignorance, isn't it, when you really look at it, that we hold all these views that are totally off the wall. Yeah. Like you join a monastery and you never have afflictions again. Yeah, everybody in the monastery is free of afflictions. We are all so kind to each other and sweet to each other. Nobody's in a bad mood. Everybody agrees on how to cut the carrots. You know, we live, you renounce, you, you change your clothes, change your hairdo, and you live happily ever after. Yeah, that's another one of our fantasies, isn't it? Yeah. And and then that one you get gets blown out of the water too, doesn't it? 
It's like, oh, but I ordained, and all these people are supposed to be nice to me now. They've been practicing for so long. (laughs) What's going on in this joint? Yeah. And I'm not supposed to have any afflictions anymore. I've shaved them off with my head, you know, so I don't have any afflictions. So why am I jealous of that one and arrogant over that one and attached to this one and ticked off at the other one, you know? Why? I'm not supposed to have that in my mind anymore. Yeah, I renounce. Now I, you know, this robe makes me a holy being. Yeah, now no more problems, just holy being. Yeah, so everybody comes up to me and goes like this, and then they bow down, and then they give me red packets, and, you know. Yeah, then I live happily ever after and collect red packets and lug my red packets around with me my whole life. (laughs) Yeah. So... You know, since we and others, if we're all going to die, what use is holding on to any of this? Yeah. It, holding on to, you know, whatever status we have is useful. Holding on to our anger, holding on to our judgments, holding on to our antipathy or our jealousy or whatever it is. Yeah. Our arrogance. None of it is, is in tune with reality. Yeah. So that's uh, so. Those are the three points from the viewpoint of self, the conventional way that all sentient beings have um, been kind in the past, present, and will be kind in the future. So we should regard them equally without abandoning any of them. And uh, and second, if you also get enmeshed in this thing of they've harmed me, they harmed me, to think that, but they've also benefited me yeah, in this life and in past and future lives. And, and then third, that since we're all going to die, there's no use holding on to, um, you know, all these weird kind of emotions towards people. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah we're all going to die and we're going to vanish. I mean, there's a continuity of who we are. That goes on. But, you know, all the things, the situations that we're so, you know, glued to in this life, when we die, you know, they're all gone. You know, who, who, who we are in relationship to other people just disappears at the time of death because we we change forms. We're born in another place, different sentient beings, different aggregates. Yeah. So uh, we can't make any of this solid. Okay, so there's a little time for questions, comments. I was really struck by how you said um, the self-centered attitude is what drives our wish to be appreciated, to be safe, to be loved. Because when those needs are present in my mind, they seem so legitimate and so precious. 
And even if I see them in other people, I'm like, oh, I understand. You know, that's that's reasonable to feel love. Yeah. And, but if we follow that self-centered attitude, we're not going to get those needs met. The only way to get them met is by caring about others or putting others first. Exactly. So <laughs> it, it seems it's, you know, I've thought a lot about NBC and how that fits in with Buddhism uh-huh. and... NBC doesn't always trace the roots of some of these needs, yeah. and it makes them seem like they're legitimate. Yeah. Um, it doesn't question the assumptions underneath these needs. And it's quite radical <laughs> to say that mm-hmm. actually that need is maybe not so skillful or how you're approaching it, how you're thinking yeah. about it. And yeah, it's difficult to do that switch, but you're just going to keep banging your head again and again if you don't. Um, do that exchange. Yeah. Good insight. Yeah, really. Because um, if you talk just on the level of conventionality, yes, those needs are very legitimate. Everybody has them. But when you really trace the root of those needs, you see that it's, you know, the, the root is rotten. And there's, and there's no way to ever have them those needs completely met, except by getting rid of of the root, in which case then you don't have the needs, so then you don't have to worry about it getting met. But you still have a lot of purpose and energy for life because now it's not tied up in me and mine and I feel and nobody understands me and I'm alone to how can I be of benefit? Yeah. Yeah. I I went through a similar kind of thing with with NBC. On one one level, oh, it was so nice to finally hear somebody talk about those needs that I had, you know, for love and reassurance and that. Oh, somebody's talking about that and saying that's legitimate. That felt so nice. But then I started thinking about, well, but that's not what the Buddha said, you know? When the Buddha, the Buddha kept analyzing where are these things coming from? What's the cause and effect going on here? Yeah? And it all comes back to those two things. I think the, the key to resilience is forgiveness is a very provoking thought. And when I think about how that matches is that all the times in my life where I either disappointed or harmed myself or somebody else disappointed or I perceived harmed me. If I let them go, that gives me a kind of ability to be able to deal, because it certainly may come up again. But the more that I held power over myself by not forgiving myself or not letting go of somebody's harm, there's a fragility there, there's a vulnerability there, there's an insecurity there that doesn't make me strong on the inside. So I can really see that all the times I've forgiven in my life have, have given me a chance to be more more empowered about having some say about how I respond to the world. Mm-hmm. But the more that I held the, the victim mentality, the helplessness, the hopelessness mentality, I was always vulnerable to the whims of the world. Yep. And that's, the, that's probably one of the, the most powerful teachings that the thought trainings have given me, that I have a choice to make in the way I hold the things that happen in my life. Yeah. 
And then I can either keep the victim thought or I can put the forgiveness in there and bring a, a, a resilient empowerment to my own ability to choose. Yeah. Yeah. You're the one who can decide how to react and how to see situations, you know, and that's where your freedom lies. Yeah. Because we can't control other people. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Going on from that, because it's kind of come up in a few private conversations this week, is that the the recognition that that we are not responsible for other people's feelings also gives us a huge space to actually deal with our own and not try to manage what's happening for them. Even they're just a rotten to us. Mm-hmm. That's still not our problem mm-hmm. if we don't take responsibility for for their own attitudes. Yeah. It's hugely freeing. Right. Very. We can have compassion for them, but compassion doesn't mean we become Mr. or Ms. Fix-It, who's responsible for making everybody feel good, because there's no way we can fulfill that. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, we're with people, and they're just... They're going through a bad spot, and there's nothing we can, you know, we can talk all we want, we can take them out, we can do da-da-da-da-da, but we we can't uh, crawl inside their mind and change them. So we can be there, we can offer compassion, and just give them space, and, and uh, you know, if we can help them find circumstances that would enable them to heal. We do that. But, yeah. Because it really is kind of egotistical, isn't it? To think that I'm responsible for their feelings so I can do a tap dance and they'll feel better. Yeah. Yeah. If I just found the right thing to do, this tap dance, that ballet dance, this musical then I'll do that, then I can solve their problems because I'm so powerful, you know, more powerful than the Buddha. The Buddha who's so compassionate can't fix their problems, but I can. <laughs> yeah. Is it kind to say to another, it's not my problem? <laughs> How do you feel when you, if you think that it's somebody else's problem, and they say to you, it's not my problem. How do you react? Not positively, do you? Nobody likes to be told, it's not my problem, it's your problem. Yeah. It's, you know, it's what you think, but you don't think it in an antagonistic way, or say it like, you know, you just pointed out my faults, but that's not my problem. That's your problem. So I'm not going to look and see if I actually have those faults or not because it just goes without saying that I don't. Uh, no. Okay. You pointed out my, my, my faults. I've got to listen and check and see if I have that. But I'm not responsible for your anger. Yeah. But I don't say that to somebody. My goodness. Yeah? What is that? I mean, just in these things, just think of how you would feel if somebody said that to you. Yeah. 
anything else? Okay, then we'll dedicate.